The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. I invite you, if you would, to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14. We'll give attention this morning to verses 12 through 24. Here's the word of the Lord. Luke writes, He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. But one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things. He said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat the bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet, and he invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. And the first said to him, I bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to the master. And the master of the house became angry, and he said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city, and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. The servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done. Still there's room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges, and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. That's the word of the Lord for us this morning. I don't know if you've ever had an experience in your life where a wonderful opportunity presented itself to you, and for one reason or the other, uh, you made excuses not to take the opportunity, only to later look back and and regret it, to wish you had done something different when the opportunity presented itself. The history of the world is marked with all sorts of missed opportunities. Some are fairly significant. You may have not heard of him, but there's a man called Mike Smith who lived back in the 60s. He worked for a music label called Decca Records. He was the executive in charge of evaluating talent for the record label. In uh, late December of 1961, leading up to New Year's Day 1962, he traveled to Liverpool, England, uh, to listen to and get a hearing for an up-and-coming band. He listened to the band. He was very impressed. They had unmistakable talent. So he brought them to... Decca's London office for an audition on New Year's Day 1962. The band arrived, they played 15 songs, and they went home and waited for their answer from the record label. Would they get their big break? When the answer finally came, the reply they got from the record label was, quote, guitar groups are on the way out. Your group, the Silver Beatles, have no future in show business. Well, history tells us that Ringo Starr and John Lennon and George Harrison did have a future in show business, later selling over 178 million records and over 1.6 billion singles. How would you like to be that record label executive who missed that opportunity? Or maybe you've never heard of Ronald Wayne. 
Back in 1976, in a small garage, a group of guys started a little computer company that would eventually change the world. There were three men involved in that. Two of them you've probably heard of. Their names both are Steve. One was Steve Wozniak, the other Steve Jobs. However, there was a third individual who was part of the founding of the Apple Computer Company. His name was Ronald Wayne. In fact, it's strange that you've never heard of him because he's the one who really wrote their first partnership agreement. He wrote the first manual for the Apple One computer, even drew the initial Apple logo himself. The reason you've probably never heard of him is because less than two weeks after founding Apple and receiving a 10% stake in the company, he sold his Apple stock for $800. Now reports tell us that he later got a check for another $1,500 in order to forfeit all claims against the company going forward. Today, that 10% stake in Apple would be worth somewhere in the neighborhood of about $55 billion. Talk about a missed opportunity, right? Ronald Wayne's a good sport, by the way. The media interviewed him a few years back, and I was reading that this week, and he looked back on it, and he said, well, you know, if I'd have had all that money, I probably wouldn't have turned out the way I am now. Got a good wife, good family, everything's good. But what a missed opportunity but nobody has ever missed an opportunity with more significant consequences in the history of the world than the religious leaders of first century Israel. Nobody has ever missed an opportunity that was more consequential than those people. The long-awaited Messiah of Israel had arrived and they refused to bow before him. They refused to humble themselves. They refused refused to admit that they were sinners. They refused to reject their religion of human works. They refused to repudiate their seeming morality as the grounds for their salvation. They refused to trust in Christ alone for entrance into the eternal kingdom of God. Nobody has ever had more access to the Messiah than them. No one has ever had a more personal invitation into the kingdom of God than these men had yet they completely missed the opportunity. And they ended up completely shut out of the kingdom of God. What an incredibly sad story it is. Losing out on $55 billion pales in comparison to losing one's soul in eternity, having stood face to face with the Messiah. Now, the Bible's made clear from the front to the back and abundantly clear in Luke's gospel already that the kingdom of the Messiah was not going to be a kingdom that was just for religious elites. It was not going to be a kingdom of people who were just moral and religious people. It was a much broader kingdom than that. It would be a kingdom that would be open to everyone. It would be a kingdom that would be particularly populated by people that the world rejected. We could go back to Isaiah 35 and we could look at messianic prophecy from the Old Testament and we would read things like this beginning in verse 4. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not, behold your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be open, the ears of the deaf unstopped, and the lame man shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. There's a time coming when God's going to return and he's going to save his people. And in that day, blind, the deaf, the lame, the mute, are going to find God's blessing and healing in his kingdom. Or you can turn a few more pages to Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, where we read this, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, 
You may recall earlier in Luke's gospel, when, he, when Jesus went to his hometown, he read this very passage in the synagogue, and he said to the crowd that was there that day, today, in your hearing, this scripture is fulfilled. He applied it to himself. It was a messianic prophecy about him, that he was going to be a Messiah who was going to come to bring good news, not to the elites, not to the religious, not to the morally good, but to the poor to the brokenhearted, to captives, to prisoners, to people who mourn. And even in the Christmas story itself, the birth of Christ, Luke chapter 2, we saw this in verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping their watch over the flock by night. The angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. All the people. This good news, this gospel that's coming, that I bring, it's, it's not for the religious elites. It's for all the people. It's for anyone who hear it and respond in faith and trust. In our text today, Jesus makes these truths abundantly clear. And he does it in a way <clears throat> that nobody would have forgotten who was present at this dinner party in which he shares these words. We've been looking through this chapter for a few weeks now, and it's a lengthy sort of uh, expose, if you will, that Luke gives us on a dinner party that Jesus attends. He's invited by uh, a Pharisee, and the dinner is populated by, by people who are just like him. Other um, haughty religious leaders have gathered around this table, this large table, and they've invited Jesus. Their motives are unclear, but they're probably bad. And Jesus is taking this opportunity at the dinner party to teach them and to expose their unrighteousness and hypocrisy. We've seen him do it in a couple of stark ways already. Just last week, we saw the preceding text where he observed how uh, all of the people found their seats at the table uh, when they arrived at the banquet, everybody jockeying for the best seat, the closest to the host, so that they could be seen as important and be viewed that way, sizing each other up, figuring out who's more important and who's better than the next guy and choosing their seats accordingly. And Jesus exposes the foolishness of that kind of selfish, self-exalting pride. And he exposes their, their remarkable lack of humility. And I'm sure they were all quite ashamed of themselves. But Jesus wasn't finished. He had some words to say to all the guests but he has some words to say to the host as well. And that's where we pick up the dinner party in verse 12. Jesus turning his attention to the host. He's already uh, exposed and offended all the guests at the table for their lack of humility. But now the host is not going to get off easy. You see, the problem is all, all these religious leaders that were in, in, in attendance on this day were selfish men and they were exclusive. All of the, the actions that they did were born out of selfishness and exclusivity. They did nothing out of love and generosity. Everything that they did was born out of this sort of prideful self-centeredness. And the dinner host at this particular day is just as guilty as everybody else that he's invited. They lived on this sort of quid pro quo system, like I scratch your back and you scratch mine. You did things for people who could do things back for you. And that's precisely what this host had done. And it was what they all did when they had a dinner party. They would invite people to the dinner who could then return the favor and do things for them. Just as it's an expression of pride to fight for the best seats at the table that you're invited to, it's equally an expression of pride to only invite people who can return the favor in your life. And that's what this man had done. We've already seen in Luke's gospel that these men cared nothing about the poor. They cared nothing about the afflicted. They saw them as filthy, rotten sinners who were unworthy of their time and unworthy of their attention and unworthy of their kindness. And they found all sorts of creative ways to avoid that kind of person. The truth
truth be told, the reality was the reason they avoided the poor and the afflicted is because the poor and the afflicted could do nothing for them. They had nothing to offer. They had no prestige. They had no money. They had no power. They had nothing to offer, so the religious leaders ignored them. The very ones who should have been caring for the poor and the sick, the very ones who should have been reflecting the compassion and the mercy and the love of God to people who needed it most, the very ones who should have been doing everything in their power to relieve suffering, were instead only looking out for themselves. And this host, who was probably wiping his brow after Jesus excoriated the guest, got the camera turned right onto him. Now, just by way of very quick application here, Jesus is just showing us another way that pride can consume the human heart. While you and I may not be guilty of jockeying for the best seat at the table when somebody invites us, it is worth stopping and asking the question, do we only show kindness and hospitality to people who can reciprocate that to us? Do we only do things for those who can do things back for us? Or maybe say it another way. When was the last time that you and I sort of acted just out of love and compassion and mercy for somebody who absolutely could do nothing to ever repay it? Well, this dinner host had not done that, and it had been a very long time since he had I don't know exactly what he expected in inviting Jesus to this dinner party, but I'm pretty sure at this point he's rethinking his strategy altogether, right? That Jesus has taken this opportunity to call out and likely offend every single person at the table at this point. But he's got more gas in the tank. He's not done. There's more to be said. And what he says next really raises the bar even more. Now, Luke sets it up for us in verse 15. He says this, when one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat the bread of the kingdom of God. Now, we have to sort of, sort of imagine the scene, right? Imagine the scene, you're at this dinner table with all these very important people, and Jesus has just exposed the, the incredible pride of everybody in the room for the way they selected their seats. And he's just done the same thing with the host for the reason he held the banquet to begin with or the reason that he held any banquet ever. I mean, what does anybody say on the heels of that, right? I don't know what you imagine the party to look like at that point, but I imagine the party at that point, everybody's kind of staring at their shoes in that awkward silence. Have you ever been in that moment where there's just the awkward silence, there's just nothing to say, and everybody's just kind of looking around like, I'm not saying anything. Are you going to say something? I'm not saying anything. Well, there's always one in every crowd, right? There's always one who'll break the silence. There's always one guy who looks around and says, well, somebody's got to say something, so I'll say something. And so finally, one guy does that. He breaks the silence. He tries to release the tension, and all he can come up with is, blessed is everyone who will eat the bread of the kingdom of God. Now, it's not entirely clear why he says this, or even what he means by it. But Jesus uses this, and he has been using this whole dinner to teach about the kingdom of God. And he's been using, in particular, this dinner meal to be a picture of the, the Messiah's feast at the end when he returns and the kingdom of God is consummated and all of God's people are gathered in. It's a picture of heaven. It's a picture of feasting around the Lord's table when all of God's people are fully redeemed at the end of time. So the image of the table of the Lord is what's been on his mind and what he's been teaching about. And he's been teaching in particular about how people get to dine at his table at the end. And even though Jesus has already indicted most of the people at this dinner for their unrighteousness, this guy is thinking, likely, this is just my imagination, all right, this is pretty controversial so far. I need to bring it down a little bit. Let me say something that at least we can all agree upon here, right? Blessed is he who gets to eat the bread in the kingdom of the Lord. Surely that's not con controversial, right? I mean, it's sure going to be a blessing for everybody who gets to eat that banquet when we get there. I mean, what could be wrong with saying that? But Jesus seems to have a problem with the statement. 
And the problem with the statement seems to be twofold. First, he assumes that God's kingdom is an abstract, distant reality rather than a present reality that's been inaugurated at Jesus' coming. He still sees the kingdom of God as something that's way in the future. And Jesus has been saying, no, the kingdom of God is upon you. It's in front of you. My presence as the Messiah has inaugurated the kingdom. It's here. And this guy has missed that part altogether. And the second part of the problem seems to be that he's assuming that himself and all those who are around the table, whatever problems they might have in the moment, are surely going to be at the table at the end. And while I'm sure he thought he was giving a benign statement that wasn't very controversial, Jesus has something to say about it. And he does it in one of his favorite ways. He tells a story. He tells a story that's so easy to follow. That would have sucked everyone in as he's telling it, trying to figure out where's he going with this thing. And as usual, at the end, he brings it around right back on their head. What's the story? Well, it's a, uh, it's a story about another man and about another banquet. Here we are at a dinner party talking about another dinner party, a fictional one. Since we're on the dinner theme, he keeps it going, and we're told that there's a man and that he decides to do a banquet, to put together a banquet, a dinner banquet. And we're told a couple things about the banquet. First, we're told it's a great banquet, so this is not some simple cheese and cracker affair, right? This is a big deal. It's a banquet. It's a great banquet. He's doing, he's pulling out all the stops. He's preparing a big feast. He's going all out. It's a big deal, a big social event, a big event. It's a great banquet. And we're told that he invites many people. So it's not just a small family gathering. This host has invited a lot of people. It's a very significant, well-known social event in the town. Great banquet, many people. And we're told at the very beginning that he, he invites many people. Now, in order to understand where Jesus is going with this, this part of the story, we need to sort of jump back and do a little quick historical note. Party invitations didn't work the same in the first century like they do now. It's just a very different thing. History has changed, times have changed, culture has changed, and things don't operate today in our culture the way they did in the first century in which Jesus is speaking now, if you throw a party, or I throw a banquet, or something along those lines, and we send out invitations, we can do that in a whole lot of different ways, right? You can kick it old school, and you can send the U.S. Postal Service invitations to people, right? Some people still do that, and it's a nice gesture when people do it. But you can do all kinds of other ways to send out invitations. You can phone people up and invite them by phone. You can send them a text message. You can email them. You can put up a website where people can go online and register for your party. There's all sorts of ways that you can quickly and efficiently invite a bunch of people to your party. Now, our culture is very time-oriented. Uh, we all wear watches or we all carry cell phone clocks, except apparently the pastor who's preaching this morning, who just realized before he stepped up here that he did not have such a thing. Uh, but before you panic, uh, Al, let me borrow his, just so you'll know. But we live in a very time-oriented culture where we wear watches and cell phones and we're very tuned into the clock and tuned into our calendars and to things like that. We went to a birthday party yesterday, that which we were invited. We got an invitation, and that invitation said, you're invited to a birthday party, and this party is going to be at this location, and it's going to be on Saturday, December the 17th, from 2 to 6 p.m. And that was all that was needed. We received the invitation, we showed up at the party, and had a wonderful time, as did some of you. But none of that worked that way in the first century. Uh, people didn't look at their clocks and their watches like we do, right? People weren't tracking time in that way. It took a while to get a, a really large banquet together. You had to go out and slaughter the animals, and there's all this stuff that had to go into. It wasn't just a quick run to Harris Teeter. So it took a while. And there was also no simple, quick way to let everybody know when things were ready. And so the way they went about this was a two-invitation sort of a system. 
you, you sent out servants to go and invite people to the party. That was the first invitation. They would go around to the people you wanted to invite and they would in person say, hey, you're invited to a party at Jim's house. He's throwing a big banquet and you're invited to come. He would love for you to be in attendance. Now, it wasn't entirely clear when the banquet would be, be ready, but normally the first invitation would go out about two to three days, somewhere in that vicinity, before the party was to actually take place. And when you got that first invitation, you were expected to respond to that invitation and to indicate whether or not you'd be coming. And to accept that first invitation, was there was an expectation that that was a firm commitment on your part to show up. To accept the first invitation and not show up was excessively rude. And so the first invitation would go out. The guy would get his RSVPs back from his servants and he would figure out how many people were coming to his banquet and then he would go out and slaughter the requisite amount of animals and he'd gather up all the vegetables and all the hors d'oeuvres and all the things you need for a, a big banquet and he'd go about preparing it all. And then once it was ready and everything was ready and it was time for the party to start, he would send out the servants again with a second invitation. And that invitation was a little different. It was, hey, the party's ready. The food's cooked. Come on down to Jim's house. It's time to get going party's starting. So in the parable that Jesus tells, this is what's going on. We're told the host had first sent out his invitation to many people, and the indication seems to be that many of those people, if not all of them, had verbally accepted the first invitation. And so the host clearly expects them to be attending, and he's prepared his banquet in light of that. And now we're told... And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servants out to say to those who had been invited, come for everything's now ready. So this is the second invitation. It's time for the banquet to start. He sends out his, his servants with the second invitation. The chicken is smoked. The lamb is roasted. The veggies are chopped up. The toothpicks are in the little things. You know what I mean? I don't know if they had toothpicks. The wine's ready to pour, right? The cake's been baked. The DJ is ready to spin some, some cool tunes. It's all ready. Everything's ready. The party's about to start. All we need are the guests to show up. So far, it's a pretty ordinary story, but it's all about to take a pretty ugly turn because a major problem begins to emerge very suddenly in the story that Jesus tells. To the host's great surprise, those people he invited who had accepted the first invitation that he was expecting to come, they don't show up. We begin to read in verse 18 how that all plays out. We're told, but they, all alike, began to make excuses. They began to make excuses. To the host's great horror, everybody who accepted his first invitation decides not to come to the party. You can't, you can't underestimate what a violation of social custom this was in that century. I mean, this was a, a major social no-no. You just didn't do it. It reflected incredibly poorly on you, and it showed absolute disdain for the host. And today, if you get an invitation to a party, and you say you're going to go, and something comes up, and you're not able to show up, it's not really a big deal, normally. People overlook it. In fact, party planners will say, you know, you only count on a certain percentage of your people who are SVP to show up. All you've planned a wedding, you all know how that works. But back then, it was incredibly shameful for you and the host if you did something like that. And that's precisely what happens here in Jesus' story. And it's not just that one or people do this. We're told that they all alike start making excuses. It's everybody. Everybody who RSVP'd decides to bail out when it was time to show up. The servant goes around to everyone and he says, come on, the party's on, the food's ready. It's time to put on your party sandals, right? It's time to get going. Saddle up the donkey. Nobody comes. Can you imagine what would happen in that sort of a situation? Imagine planning some massive birthday party and you've invited everybody and you've planned all this. The food's all ready. The DJ's there. It's all happened. And nobody shows up. 
Everybody calls at the last minute and says, oh, we can't make it. That's the scenario. And to make matters worse, they start making all these excuses. Now, Luke doesn't comment on the validity of the excuses. To me, they all seem pretty lame. In fact, it seems to me like they're not even trying to come up with good excuses. Like, you know, and I know, you can make a good excuse, right? Come on, you know, it's not just me, it's you too, right? You know, you, you, you say you're going to go do something, and then the time comes, and you're like, oh, man, why did I say I would do that? I really don't want, I don't, I don't even like them all that much, and I, why did I, you know? And so you, you, you get really creative. You come up with, you know, this thing came up, and I had to, you can be really creative with your believable excuses, can't you? Why do you look uncomfortable right now? <laughs> These people don't even seem to try. We're going to be given a few examples. Guest number one comes up with this one. He says, I bought a field and I must go out and see it. I just bought some property. I saw, oh, you know, that party. Is it time already? Is it really already time? I just bought some, I just bought some property. I, I need to go check it out my property. Sorry, I need to be excused. Oh, that's ridiculous, isn't it? Like, first of all, who buys property sight unseen and doesn't check it out? Surely he's already surveyed his land, his land somewhere. Surely, even if he hadn't, the land's going to be there tomorrow, and he could always take care of that then, right? Is that an excuse to not show up for a banquet? I just bought some land, and I need to go look at the dirt. I mean, all sorts of questions come to mind. You couldn't come because you have to go look at dirt? Can you look at dirt tomorrow? It'll be, it's not like it's living land that's going to get up and walk away and be gone tomorrow. What a terrible excuse. The reality is, he just doesn't want to go to the banquet. He'd rather go look at dirt. The second guy isn't much better. Here's, here's what he says. He says, oh, is it that time I bought five yoke of oxen? And I got to go look at them. I got to go examine them. Oh, I'm so sorry. The party's now. It's the worst time ever. I just bought a bunch of oxen. I got to go check these oxen out. Again, did you not inspect your oxen before you bought them? What, what, are they, they're just going to look the same, aren't they? Are, are the oxen going to go somewhere overnight? Why can't you just go do it tomorrow? By the way, the, the purchase of land and the number of oxen indicate that we're talking about wealthy people here. People who have land and people who have oxen, people who have business to attend to. He's got stuff to do. The bottom line is, this guy too, he just doesn't want to go to the banquet. He just doesn't want to go. And then we get to the guest number three. He, he comes up with a creative one. I, I, I married a wife and I can't come. Now this one takes the cake, right? Sorry, I just got married. I can't make it. How does that work? So, but you got married between the first and second invitation? What, she can't come with you? To the banquet? And did you just find a gal walking down the street in a lope, or what happened? <laughs> this is when you read when you read Bible commentaries, you run across some interesting things. Here's what one commentator said about this. He said he wanted to make sure that no opportunity to beget children would be missed. <laughs> really? Now, I would have liked to have seen the face of the servant if that was what was going on here. Sorry, it's day night. We can't make it. Again, a silly, a silly excuse, right? I just got married. I can't come. The bottom line at all of this is this. None of these things are legitimate reasons to miss the banquet. The bottom line is, in their eyes, they have more important things to do. They have property, they have oxen, and they have family things going on. They all have different excuses, but one thing they all have in common, they will not come to the banquet. That's the bottom line. Now, if you'd been sitting in the audience, listening to Jesus tell the story, you would have immediately thought, this is an absolutely ridiculous story. This would never in a million years happen. It would never happen. Somebody would have a banquet and nobody would show up. It's absolutely too ridiculous. Nobody would ever experience this. Little did they know the story was about to get even more ridiculous. 
Because we're told the servant came and reported these things to his master and the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. You see the servant, you can see the servants coming back, right? Sir, we've got some bad news. Uh, the folks you invited are not coming. You know, the one guy, he just bought some land. The other guy's got some oxen. He needs to go check out this other guy. His, his wife's cracking the whip. She's not letting him come. Unfortunately, it looks pretty sparse here. All those people who said they'd show up aren't showing up. And his reaction is, is understandable, isn't it? He's angry. He's angry. He's slaughtered his animals. He's, he's gone to great expense to prepare this wonderful banquet. And all these people don't show up. It's a major public insult. What's he going to do? Is he going to cancel a party? No. This, this host, this master, expands the invitation list. He says essentially this. The people that I invited, they didn't appreciate the invitation, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send my servants out. I'm going to go find some people who will appreciate the invitation. I'm going to invite them. The banquet's going to go on. My table will be full. So he says, go find the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. Does that sound familiar? If you just scroll back to verse 13, you find that same language. These are the folks who are Israel's outcasts. They're the outcasts. They're the same group of people that Jesus had told the host, if you really want to be godly in the way that you conduct yourself, and you really want to reflect God's mercy and generosity and kindness to people, don't invite people who do stuff back for you. Go, find, go invite, invite these people, the, the lame, the sick, the afflicted, people who don't get invites. And here again, he's come back to the theme. In this fictional story, the master sends his servants out. Go out and find people who will appreciate the invitation. Go out and find the people who never get invited to anything. Certainly not a social event that, it, that was major like this. You go find them and invite them. They'll appreciate the invitation and they'll come. Now, now if, if Jesus' listeners had thought it was ridiculous and impossible that somebody would throw a banquet and nobody would show up like that in, in such a vivid way, they would have been gagging a little in their mouth at this point. No, no respectable socialite would have invited that kind of a crowd to their banquet. Under no circumstance would you do it. They would have been repulsed by that idea. They would have shut down their party before they invited that kind of crowd. But the servant goes and he invites him. And he comes back and he says to the master, he says, sir, what you commanded has been done. Now get this. There's still room at the table. We got a lot of meat. We got a lot of those cheese cube things. And we got a bunch of people here now, but there's still a lot of room. So he says, all right, here's what you do. Go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. So here's how it flows, right? He, he, he sends the, his, his first group of invitees are the people that you would have expected him to invite. They all, they all ignore him, shun him, humiliate him publicly and bail out. So he says, all right, go out into the town and you get the people around town who never get invites, the poor, the lame, the crippled, the people everybody ignores. Go get them and invite them in. The table isn't full at this point. So he says, all right, go outside the town, go down the highways, out into the hedges, go even further away. And find anybody who will come and compel them to come on into the banquet. Those out-of-towners, those people in the highways and the hedges, they're even more distant from the host. These people likely wouldn't even know who the host was. The kind of people who lived out there were a little, a little sketchy. They were kind of seedy folks living in brothels and seedy inns and roadhouses and places like that or people who were homeless and had nowhere to live. Pretty unsavory crowd. He says, go find them and invite them to the banquet. 
In fact, he says, compel them to come. Now, people have taken this text and used it in all sorts of weird ways over the course of Christian history, but it's really simple what he's trying to convey here. These people who are on the highways and the hedges who don't even know the host are going to need some convincing and some persuading. Some stranger walks up to him and says, hey, come to the party. There's a host back in town. He's prepared a great banquet and he's invited you. Can you imagine who did this? He's invited me. I don't even know that guy. I don't, I don't know. This seems sketchy. I'm not going to, I'm not following you anywhere. You can imagine they would need some convincing, right? Not only are they not used to being invited to anybody's party, but they're certainly not used to being invited to a stranger's party. So somebody has to compel them, persuade them, convince them that this is real. So he says, go do that. It's pretty interesting here to note that the master is determined to fill up his house, isn't he? He's not going to quit until the house is full. Now, this story would have seemed ridiculous to everybody on all fronts. It would never happen, and nobody would do that. But it's a very serious point that Jesus is trying to make. And it's not just a ridiculous story to make people scratch their head. It was all about his kingdom. And it was all about who would gain entrance to his kingdom. It was all in response to a man who made a statement assuming that he and all of his religious buddies and moral buddies were going to be shoe-ins for the kingdom. And Jesus is trying to tell a story to explain to him, not only are you not going to all be shoe-ins for the kingdom, but you're going to be excluded from the kingdom. And all the people that you hate are the ones who are going to get there. That is if you don't repent. So it wasn't just a random story. It was full of symbols, right? The host in the story is symbolic of whom? It's of God. God who's, who's hosting a banquet in eternity. A messianic banquet that the Old Testament has told us about. The banquet itself is that. It's the messianic feast in the eternal kingdom of God. The initial invitees, who do they represent? Well, they represent the people who are sitting at the table at the dinner party that Jesus is at. All of the religious establishment of Israel. They're the initial invitees who had all of the Old Testament, who told them that they were God's special people, who had all of the religious ceremony of the temple and all the slaughter of the lambs that was supposed to point out to them that they were sinners in need of a, of a savior. They were sinners in need of a redemptive sacrifice on their behalf. Instead, they had missed all of that stuff and, and had puffed themselves up believing that their religious behavior and their morality was going to make them shoe-ins to the kingdom. Till the servant comes, Jesus Christ himself. And he says to him, I'm the Messiah. I'm here. The banquet is ready. The kingdom is prepared. You can come, but you have to enter in by the narrow door. That's me. Humble yourselves. Take your place at the Father's banquet. And yet they rejected him. And they spurned him. And they made every excuse in the world for not trusting in him. And their excuses were just as ridiculous as the excuses that the people made in this fictitious story that Jesus told. Those who were originally invited chose to not show up. Who are the second invitees? Well, those are the Jewish outcasts, the people who don't feel worthy of an invite, the people who were surprised to be invited in the first place, the people who Jesus primarily was ministering to all throughout his ministry. We've seen this in Luke over and over. Where does, who does Jesus spend his time around? He spends his time around the poor and the afflicted and the sick, and he heals them from day to night on many occasions. People who were paid no attention to by the religious leadership, Jesus loved, and he showed compassion, and he showed mercy, and he invited them into his kingdom. All the people that the Pharisees hated and rejected and ignored. That's the, the second group of invitees. People, people who have no shred of pride in themselves that makes them feel like they deserve a place in the banquet hall of the king. People who are shocked, in fact, to even hear that an invite is being issued to them. But that doesn't fill up the, the table, does it? It doesn't fill up the kingdom either. 
There's a third group of Gentiles, excuse me, of invitees, and it, uh, clearly Jesus is talking about out the, the, the highways and the hedges. He's talking about the Gentiles and beyond. All right, Israel, you're going to reject me. I'm the Messiah you've been longing for, and you're going to reject me, and you're going to turn me away, and you're going to refuse to enter the kingdom by me. That's fine. I'm going to go out, and we're going to, we're going to find people who will listen to the invite and who will respond and come, and it'll be the people who you hate and the people who you reject. And beyond that, the broader Gentile world. Friends, you and I are part of the third group of invitees. If you're in the kingdom of God right now, it's by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ because somebody, a servant of the king, came into your world at some point and said, hey, you need to know something. The king of all creation loves you and he wants you to dine with him at his table forever. He wants to invite you into his kingdom so that when you die, guess what? You'll live and you'll have a place at his eternal kingdom where you'll dine and find joy forevermore. Repent of your sin. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ who's died on your behalf. Come and be a part of the kingdom. If you're here this morning and you've responded to that gospel call in your life, you're this group of third invitees. You're recipients of an invitation from the king. And there's a place at the table for you. You notice in Jesus' story, he doesn't, he doesn't tell us any more about what happens next because that is still going on. The Lord's table is still not full and the invitation is still going out. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, it's not too late. The invitation is open to you there's still, there's still a seat at the table. There's still a place at the feast that the king of all creation has prepared. And it's got your name on it. The only question is, will you be like the Pharisees, the religious leaders who hear the invitation and say, you know what, I've got all kinds of things to do. I'm a busy man. I'm a busy woman. I've got business and I've got things and I've, I've got stuff going on with the kids and, and you know, I'm, I'm working all these hours during the week and, you know, I, that's a wonderful invitation and it sounds like a lovely feast. But right now, I just don't have time to think about that. But I'll get back to it later. Or you come up with some of the other thousand excuses people come up with to reject the invitation. You need to hear if that's you this morning. But the invitation is open to you now. But there's no guarantee that it'll be open tomorrow or the next day. Because there's coming a time when the banquet is going to be filled. And there will be no more seats at the table. And the servants will be called back and there'll be no more invitations going out. And sadly, that's where all these religious leaders on this particular day would find themselves. Because Jesus concludes by saying, I tell you, none of those men who are invited will taste my banquet. You talk about a missed opportunity? Not a one of them. Every one of them shut out. It's the final consequence for rejecting Christ. Exclusion from the banquet. And everybody who gets excluded from the banquet is excluded not because they aren't invited, but because they foolishly reject the invitation and have a thousand excuses for why. If you're this morning and you've heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and you've turned it away, what's your excuse? You're too busy? You got other things going on? There's family stuff, there's business, there's work. What's your excuse? Whatever excuse you give me, it's gonna sound about as good as the ones we read in Jesus' story. There is no excuse good enough for missing this opportunity to have a seat at the Lord's table forever. A free invitation all who will bow themselves in humility before the Lord Jesus Christ and receive him as Lord and Savior. Abandoning their religious works, abandoning their morality, and trusting in him. Don't be a fool. Don't miss the opportunity while it's in front of you. Bow before Jesus Christ this Christmas season. Accept his invitation. Find your place at his table.
Well, our time is up. If you're a Christian here this morning, there is one more piece to this, and we'll circle back to it in two weeks. If I read the story right, that Jesus tells the people arrive at the banquet because somebody goes out and invites them. That's how people know that the banquet is there and that they're invited. If you're a Christian this morning, and you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have a reservation at the table. It's worth stopping to think about the last month, two months, six months. Have you invited anyone else to come join you? Is there anybody else out there in the highways and the hedges that needs to hear the invitation? The invitation that somebody brought to you? We'll talk about that more in a couple weeks, but it's worth thinking about now. There's no better time than Christmas, I'm convinced, than to tell people about Christ because everybody's already talking to some degree or the other about him anyway. What a wonderful opportunity we have in these next two weeks to find that person that we've been meaning to talk to about Christ and to talk to him. That we would love somebody enough to give him the gospel this Christmas season. Let's do that. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, what a striking story you told on this day. Mind-boggling, in fact. Shocking in many ways. And remarkable at the same time. You remind us that we have a Heavenly Father that is merciful and kind and gracious. Has prepared for us an eternal banquet and invited us to join him. We don't have to do a certain number of good works to get in. We don't have to be to live up to a certain level of morality. We don't have to attend enough church services and Bible studies and pray a certain number of times. It's, it's a free offer to all who bow before his son. Your son. Who recognize that he died on a Roman cross and shed his blood for our sin. And that even though we're not worthy to sit at your banquet table and to enter your kingdom, you've provided a way for us to come in spite of our unrighteousness by the blood of your son. We are so grateful that you're that kind of a God. Because if we're honest about ourselves, we are the lame and the crippled and the poor. We are the ones who don't deserve an invite. I have no business making any claims to your kingdom. But you've graciously offered and invited us. And it's our joy to accept the invitation to come. But there are some in this room who have not accepted that invitation. They've heard it. Maybe they've heard it many, many times. And every time there's an excuse for why they can't accept the invitation and come. And at the moment, those excuses seem relevant and important. But in the picture of eternity, they're meaningless and pointless. And if the excuses continue, they'll get them excluded from the kingdom. I pray that by your spirit this morning, you would blow through the excuses that have built up in the hearts of some men and women in this room. And that today would be the day of salvation. They would hear that gospel call and accept the invitation to come and be saved. By your spirit, make that the reality, Lord. I pray for your glory. Amen.